Welcome to Rumble's Trip Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. Today, a conversation with one of Vermont's most inventive musicians and composers, Michael Chorney. Michael is a self-taught musician, arranger, and composer. But if you asked me what genre of music he makes, I'd have no idea. All of them? None of them? He spent years mastering different musical genres in both guitar and baritone sax. He's played British Isles-inspired folk music, improvisational jazz, soul, rock. And over the years, in his own music, the lines between these genres have gotten really blurry. And that's how he wants it. Michael has been the band leader of some of the most lush, uncategorizable music in this state. Bands like Viper House, Magic City, Orchid, the so-called Jazz Sextet, and Holler General. I talked with him at his house, a renovated goose coop in Lincoln, Vermont, and one of the quietest places on earth, or so he says. We talk about his music and growing up in Buffalo. We talk about driving to gigs in Burlington with a blown-out muffler. He talks about his collaboration with Anais Mitchell on the 2010 folk opera Hades Town, And he sings. You'll hear a lot of music this hour, some of it from his upcoming album with Holler General. We started out talking about the upcoming album. Here's Michael Chorney. The process has been interesting because I started on this much of this music that's on this new album last winter using two things as an impetus. One was knowing we were in for a really long, hard winter. I just felt it in my bones. So I planned ahead, moved the table over by the wood stove, and knew I was going to spend a couple months writing some new material. I wasn't exactly sure what it was, but I knew it was going to be for Holler General, my band, plus um, strings, which I love writing for. And as I was preparing to like start of em- uh, embark on this work, I got a letter in the mail from uh, the New York State Adoption Agency that I had forgotten all about a couple years. I was adopted at birth and um, never found any information out whatsoever about my birth parents. None. And as my daughters got older, they were really curious. So Hazel, my younger daughter, encouraged me to finally send in the um, notarized letter to the agency, which would then allow them to release what they call non-identifying information. And uh, so I did that finally and forgot all about it. And almost more than a year went by and I went out to the mailbox one day and saw this letter and brought it in. And it was really pretty profound in some ways to just get like find out my birth mother's age, uh, my heritage. I had no idea that I was French and Irish. Um, my birth weight, just simple little facts that I had never known. And um, under there was a column under the, both the, my birth mother and my birth father, the way the letter was laid out, that said, um, hobbies, talents, and interests. And it said nothing for my mother, for my father, it said artistic, <laughs> which was interesting because I was raised my, by my adopted parents in a family. We had no music whatsoever in my house. Um, it wasn't until I was 10 or 11 and became obsessed with the radio 
that I started to really, that they started to realize, my mom started to realize how much music meant to me. And um, she was working as a bookkeeper in a restaurant and noticed the fellow would come in every week and take two 45s out of the jukebox and replace them. And she asked him, what do you do with the old ones? He's like, oh, you can have them. So she started bringing home two 45s every week. And that was my... <laughs> How I started to really get into music. And it wasn't until I was 16 that I got, um, my mother got me a guitar for Christmas. So, and then I taught myself. I'm self-taught with everything I do. Was it, were you alone when you got that letter? No, Hazel was here. And, and what was the, what was that like for you? Um, it was, it was unnerving. It was exciting to get it. Um, we laughed a bit about some of the things. It was, but it, what it ultimately did was pique my imagination to such a degree that that's what the, the centerpiece of this new album is a suite that I wrote kind of based on imaginings of who these characters were, my mother and my father, having very little information. <laughs> but knowing it was in upstate New York, knowing she was 28, Catholic, already married, uh, back in 1960, that's an old maid, and sounded like he was in public relations so you know very easy to imagine a uh, madman kind of character uh, knocked her up split the letter I got from the adoption people was actually a personal letter they they uh, it began with your mother's situation was very complicated so that I started these imaginings and that led to this Ogdensburg suite that I wrote that's the the centerpiece of the new album I see what we once were, evil, strong, and sure, dirty, drunk, and pure. You cracked your smile. when you start a new project? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a degree, maybe not of fear, some apprehension. I hear a lot of the music in my head, and I only get some of it down. Um, so I'm always striving to get some of the good stuff, <laughs> if I can find it. It's like fishing a little bit. So that would, would be where the apprehension comes of falling short of what I imagine these pieces could be. But it gets leavened by the pure delight of working with the musicians, what they bring. I always, my process very deliberately builds in a lot of open-endedness. I don't have something like ironclad in my mind and hope for them to play that perfectly. It's really different. I have more of a, a general scheme in mind. I'll have specific ideas and notes and things like that but still build in all kinds of uh, latitude for them to bring their artistry to it. 
So it becomes collaborative in that way. Many writers and composers have a hard time with that because it's not what they were hearing or dreaming of. Instead, um, you have to kind of bend and sometimes even accept things that might not be the greatest, you know, but I'll, for example, sometimes I'll perceive a musician who comes up with an idea for one of the pieces we're working on that they're really into, you can tell, you know, and I might be like a little bit, mm, I'm not sure about that, but it's more important to me that their spirit engages in the, in the, in the process in that kind of delighted way than necessarily uh, B flat's fine. You know, it didn't it could have been C, but B flat's fine. You um, can you describe <laughs> just the the trajectory of a of a of a, of, a, of an album? You know what if it's a if it's a if it's a um, pie chart? Uh-huh. You know, how much of that pie chart is is um, sort of wandering around in the wilderness oh yeah well, almost the whole pie i mean i spent i spent months and months and months on that music uh writing the scores for the strings you know i write everything by hand so 30 seconds of music can take a week sometimes all of that effort goes in or just the uh, miles i take you know take walks just waiting to hear the the little cello line, like four notes sometimes that will kind of open up what that part wants to be. So it's a lot of like waiting <laughs> for the stuff to, and being in a, engendering the right frame of mind so that what I'm waiting for can come. Um, but once it starts to unfold, then it's, sometimes it'll come in a rush. Often with writing lyrics and songs, they'll come in just an afternoon or in a night. Um, most of the time, if the initial idea has some integrity, it will unfold. And then there's many, many that just don't. <laughs> and that's okay, too. You know, it's like, all right, that's how it works. The, there's a song I wrote called Joyce that it's based on the short story The Dead by James Joyce. I didn't intend that when I started it. I just had an image in mind. And... I wrote the song in one night and realized afterwards that it was a retelling of that story by Joyce set in Buffalo in modern times, but kind of a retelling, but not really. It was still out. The images are really personal to me. There's so much in the songs that only I know about, um, as I'm sure is true of many, many songwriters. In fact, I would hope it is, because there's the mystery. This world just rolls along Nothing's right and nothing's wrong There is no man, no child We've only hands and heart To make our You're listening to Michael Chorney. This is Rumblestrip, Vermont. And you're actually making a record. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Why? Well, the whole idea of um, 
of music and its role in this culture is really i'd say in a in a very precarious and not a very healthy place with the advent of youtube and everything people feel like they have access and they do they have nothing is rare anymore you know go on youtube and type in rare bob dylan and you'll find some clip that's gotten two million hits and and i find that to be a really sad thing to me like mtv was the beginning of the end of a, a collective imagination a certain beautiful thing we used to all share there'd be a popular song that everyone knew the words to so we're all sharing that as a culture you know even a stupid popular song where everyone knows the words and yet, prior to then, all the mental images everyone had were their own. And I think the kind of collective imagination that engendered was a really healthy and good thing for a culture. And when that went away, when they gave us all the same pictures too, I just thought it, it really robbed music of some of its most potent and powerful and beautiful expression. And that was to ignite people's imaginations. So, as far as making a record in this day and age, I'd like it to be a physical object. I'm not going to sell many records. I mean, people uh, in Vermont, people know who I am a little bit in certain parts of the world, but how many am I really going to sell? <laughs> you know? And so we could put them online. And, you know, I just got my check from Spotify a couple weeks ago for, uh, I think it was for $8.34 for the thousands and thousands of plays. So it's not a monetary choice. Um, so why not make an object that's a beautiful object that you can hold while you listen to and read and look at and hold in that way? The downside, I mean, the guys, I've said to the guys, I'm really thinking maybe just vinyl, like only vinyl. And, but that would limit, of course, one thing we do hope to do is to be able to, uh, go out and play more. We don't play very often and all of us want to play more. So if we really do hope this record could afford some of that, we'll have to put it out digitally to some degree, but I'd rather just keep it an object. Yep. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, well, let's see. The first one I went and bought was, uh, I think it was 9 or 10. Maggie May was a big hit by Rod Stewart. So I went out and bought Every Picture Tells a Story. I was thrilled. <laughs> um, do you remember, you know, going back to Buffalo and being 9 or 10, mm -hmm. do you have any memory of the very... I don't know, it's kind of a, hard, a stretch to imagine it's possible, but was there like a, a moment when you knew that there was something, that it was a language that you needed? Or just that you wanted it, that you wanted music? Yeah, I remember I was really young. I was like maybe in first or second grade, so I was six or seven or eight, somewhere in there. And like I said, we had no music in my family. Um, I think we had three records. We had an exercise record, South Pacific, and Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> and that was it. And one of those big old stereo consoles, you know. Um, 
and we didn't have much music at my school. It was a Catholic school. There was there was no band or any you know band instruments or anything like that. So I didn't know a thing about it. And I remember walking to school one day and making up a little melody in my head and wanting to try to remember it and not knowing how. Um, singing it kind of over and over, but knowing how easy it is to forget. <laughs> so I, when I got to school that day, I, I didn't know anything about writing music or staff paper. I kind of created, I invented my own little staff and put the notes in a relation that I thought would, that I would somehow remember that little melody. And I may have, I don't know. It could be something I just wrote last week. <laughs> Again. You know, so. <laughs> Did you have a teacher who was who was important to you? One guy. Um I I'm pretty much self-taught. I was given the guitar for Christmas and that was it. I just closed the door and went and worked and just played and played and played. And how, how old were you? Fifteen, I think, fifteen or six fifteen. And um and then I had I did have a guitar teacher for a short amount of time in Buffalo. My mom really wanted me to, you know, you should do lessons too. And I was like, okay, great. I'm excited to learn more. But he wasn't a great teacher and, and he had horrible breath. And <laughs> it was a tiny room. And, uh, and then I went to a lesson one day and he was gone. He wasn't there. He was sick. And there was this nice hippie guy there. And he's like, you know, if you don't mind, I'll be your teacher. They asked me to sub today. So and I was like, great. So we go into the little practice room and he said, so what do you want to learn? I said, man, I've always wanted to learn how to do that finger picking style. And he's like, oh, that's what I do. And he showed me everything. He showed me all the patterns. He wrote them down so I could bring them home. And that was the one lesson of all lessons that it was fantastic. You know, and I went home playing it at a snail's pace, but I stayed up so late until I could get it. So that, that and on saxophone... I only had one lesson. It was from Joe Moore, who's a great saxophone player up in Burlington. And I was just learning, and he uh, heard us play, and I went to the bar after the set, and he was sitting there, and he said, hey, man, you sound all right. And I was like, really great, because I was just starting. He's like, use your lower lip more. And that was the lesson. <laughs>
listening to Michael Chorney. This is Rumble Strip, Vermont. In this next segment, Michael talks about his collaboration with Anais Mitchell on the 2010 folk opera Hadestown. Hadestown came about because I had my band Magic City going at that point, which is an extraordinarily amazing band. And the instrumentation for Magic City is the instrumentation for Hadestown. Magic City played not a lot of shows, but some at that time. And they were pretty sensational shows. They were wonderful. And meanwhile, I was working with Anais on her record, The Brightness, in which she started to write the initial stuff for Hadestown. And her and her now husband, Noah, came and heard Magic City one night in Montpelier and were convinced it was the greatest band in the world. <laughs> they loved it. So as Anais started working on this folk opera, she then... It occurred to her, it was a folk opera, and she said, what if I write these songs and you arrange them for Magic City? So that's how that came to be. And then it kind of took over for the next couple of years. Magic City got shelved because that project was all-consuming. Can you talk about the collaboration with her? Yeah, it was interesting because Aeneas is so lyric and story-centric. Absolutely. And I am so melody and harmony-centric. I get the gist of lyrics, the sound of them, the feel of them, but I can't, I won't listen to a song and then be able to just recite to you back the, the lyrics. Aeneas can do that. But I can listen to a song and sing to you back the cello line, uh, that kind of thing. So it was an incredible marriage of strengths. I heard in the music right away how it could be expanded and how it could work. So it was a beautiful kind of marriage of, of these disparate strengths that really bolstered one another, I think. What, how did, that, how did the, the kind of splash of Hadestown impact your life? It, it was interesting. Um, the kind of role I have in a work like that is a background role, even though it's profoundly affected the work itself. And that's a tricky thing to have to accept. Um, there were, I think, of the hundreds of reviews that it got, which were incredibly favorable. Apparently, this composite review website lists that record as one of the best reviewed records of any record. Of I mean, I think there's one by Kanye that got half star more. So I don't know. It got very well reviewed reviewed and um but of all the reviews i think there was only one that cited my work as as you know really pointed out that how important it was to the thing and that's understandable i mean who thinks about the beatles songs like the arrangement of eleanor rigby for example that was george martin did those beautiful strings on that but no one thinks about that you know, <laughs> so I understand that that aspect of things. Um, so yeah, it splashed. We got to tour. We got to do some of the most fun tours ever. I mean, uh, because we would go to different parts of the world and play with the musicians from there. So when we did, for example, California sings Hades Town. You know, you meet these six or seven new people. You tour for a week. That's it, and you have just a great time because they were such interesting, wonderful musicians. So there was that, um, but I was at um, 
an Ani DeFranco concert last spring because my friend Todd and I know Ani from all that touring we did and um, they're buddies and Todd Sikafus who produced the Hadestown record is bass player for Ani and has been for many years so when they came to town he got a hold of me and was like do you want to come down and you know we'll hang out and so I went down and had a fine time and uh, after the concert I was with my friend Ron and we were waiting in the little area to be able to go backstage. And these fans came up, Ani fans came up, and they were like, can you take us in there with you? <laughs> we were like, no, you know. And and they were like, oh. And they looked at Ron, they said, did you ever work with Aeneas Mitchell? And he just laughed, and he goes, no, but this guy has. And they're like, oh, uh, what's your name? And I said, Michael Chorney. And they're like, oh. So have you ever heard that record, Hadestown? Town?" <laughs> And I, I said, yeah, I've heard. I have. That was it. <laughs> so there's that. You know, it's a funny thing. But in that role, that's what you sign up for. Right. You know? Yeah. But, but that's, it's an interesting, I don't know, challenge. It's a big fat ego challenge. Oh, yeah. For sure. But a couple of interesting things have happened. I mean, there was one time, you know, being an artist in Vermont means taking a vow of poverty. And I was going up to Burlington to play some show for at Radio Bean for like nothing. You know, glad to be going. It was winter. Muffler was blown out on my car. I wasn't sure how I was going to get it fixed. And I get in and I start driving up there. I turn the radio on and it's um, all things considered. And they're doing some story about income disparity. And then the, the little interstice music, the little... Uh, stuff they played in between was something I wrote for Hades. That was all me. That was all my writing. And I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk about being a, a musician in Vermont. And, you know, like, what are the cha- what are the challenges and, I, and the benefits? Yeah. The benefits are that we live in an area outside of trendiness. And I think that's really healthy for the creative process. The challenges are probably similar to anywhere, really, in a way. Um, There's very few musicians who simply, you know, just write their music, tour, and get royalties. Uh, There are some. There's some. But generally, to be a working musician means to do about a dozen things. Uh, Work in different bands. I'm a sideman. I'm a band leader. Um, I do recordings. I do production. So all of it's creative-oriented, all of it's music-oriented. I'm music director at Middlebury College for the dance program. So all these little things kind of piece together to make, you know, it possible to live. But, you know, it's a life, not a living, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Okay, you're recording? Yeah. All right.
another winter Another quiet time Another storm I think of you And carry water I think of you of the stone Hey Another author Another story It ends the same I think of you And read the weather of you and take the long way home you get chicks <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny it's i mean it seems like a kind of an obvious question really yes well no i mean i suppose yes many of the women i have met in my life um I have met at some either collaborating or some this or that. Yeah, there's that, but 
four-year-old single man in Vermont, it's pretty... <laughs> it's pretty bleak around here. <laughs> Help me get chicks. <laughs> Being single in Vermont oh, yeah. is brutal. It's brutal. I mean, I was married for 20 years. My ex-wife and I are still very good friends and, you know, co-parenting our daughters who have flown the coop and all that. But so it's fairly new to me. You know, it's been like seven or eight years now. So it still seems new. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's absurd, especially if you're not into kayaking or something, you know. <laughs> or farmer's markets. Oh, or yoga. Or yoga. <laughs> Green tea. Yeah. Whiskey, art. museums and things like that yeah 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 it's funny so are you ever lonely oh god yeah how does loneliness affect the way that you work um there can be a time like the song you just heard uh i came from a very you know quiet lonely place i would say to a certain degree so it can be an impetus to be creative when it's not just an impetus to not be creative and be on the couch or just sort of slogging through day to day. But this time of year, where are we, early December, I still have some degree of, uh, you know, optimism. Talk to me in March. <laughs> it could be all gone by then. You know, there's a... I'm 45 and was, have been, I would say, alone for the majority of my adult life. Uh-huh. That, you know, I think that there are people who are always with somebody. Yeah. And then there are people who are, um, date, they date a lot, mm-hmm. I guess. That's the second category. And then there are the third category who are sort of more naturally alone. And then if they meet somebody that they are going to be with, then mm-hmm. that's what happens. Right. And I think I'm in that third category. Yeah, that's so where I ended up, I think. Yeah. So... Um, and in a way, there's a kind of a, a, a required maintenance of self mm-hmm. being alone mm-hmm. that changes. Yes. And that, and it also affects the way that you make things. Yes. Do you think that this is true? Yes. Okay. Can you just talk about it? What I think you're touching on is self-reliance. And I've been fiercely self-reliant. Even... As uh, a partner in a marriage and uh, raising my children, there's a degree of self-reliance that I've only begun to identify. And what I think it is, is the artistic impetus, the creative impulse, when stripped away from everything external, from accolades, from popularity, even acceptance... Uh, those are external elements to the creative process. The heart of it can only be validated within the artists themselves. And I, any artist knows that moment when you, when you hit it, when it's like, there's a, that's a good line, or, oh, I like that harmony. Just those tiny little moments of validation, or that's a good work. No matter externally what you're hearing, it's that internal voice, that internal knowledge that is the only one that ends up ultimately counting. And maybe I I did see I was with a person for a short amount of time. Uh, it was very delightful. And 
we decided to break things off and I asked her a little bit of where she was at. It was a mutual thing and it was fine, but she said, no, I can't, I can't compete. And I said, compete with what? She said, your art, your music, um, which that I, that was, it, I found that really almost, hurt, it hurt me to hear that because I don't think of those, you know, my work and then my interpersonal relationships, I think of them as very different things, but I understood what she meant. Uh, she was saying, no, I need someone who, I am their reason for being, not their work. And I was like, oh, I need both. <laughs> yeah. Closely Hold your children one upon each knee Teach them Songs with lovely melody Make for them memory Quiet, solid state So I grew up in Buffalo and Aeneas and I were touring as a duet and we were going, we were playing a show in Buffalo at a, a club called Nietzsche's, which I used to sneak into underage to play the open mic. I was 17 and it's like still there. And then through the years, uh, Viper House had played at Nietzsche's and I hadn't been back in years and years and years, but I remembered from Viper House when we played there, we would play, we must have played this three or four times. And the bartender there was a, you know, the bars stay open till 4 a.m. in Buffalo. And the bartender there was this woman who was pretty surly. She was pr really tough uh, in a good way, but definitely wasn't going to chat with you. You know, it's like, what do you want? Kind of thing. And I remember with Viper House, we had finished the gig. And she asked me, what do you want? And I said, I'll have a pint of Jenny. And so Genesee is the Buffalo beer. And so that gave her a little, I got a little nod of approval. <laughs> and I said, because, you know, I grew, oh, Jenny, because I grew up here. And then I got a big nod of approval from her. She's like, oh, you're from Buffalo. And I remember her telling me then, she's like, I love this city. I hope they never find out about it. 
she felt very proprietary and uh buffalo is an interesting town so anyway many years later Aeneas and i are playing at nietzsche's and it's the same bartender i i remembered her and it was a big it was a packed house but um we were preparing our set that day, and Aeneas said, Michael, let's do one of your songs. She was going to sing it, and she said, let's do Joyce, which is set in western New York, so, which was really nice of her. And we played that song, and it went over really well. People liked it a lot. Did a few more, took our break. I went to the bar, and there was that, that bartender, and she said, uh, what do you want? <laughs> I said, I'll have a Jenny. She goes and gets the Jenny. She comes back and slams it down in front of me and just says, that's the best fucking song I've heard years. <laughs> that was satisfying. I granted it its external validation, but the best kind, you know, that really felt great. <laughs> She's thinking as he lays down on the bed. She's looking out the window at the diesels and the cars. Folks returning from the bars. Remembering that college boy from 
all those years ago They said he stood out in the rain And called and called her name Till her mama told him he should go They heard he died in Buffalo And though she's often wondered She could never really know just what he gave in to Till that night at the motel With the snow falling silently Her hope all gone to hell They always took the back roads When they drove up every year the afternoon was clear They stopped for gas and cigarettes Sandwiches and beer It really does have the texture of upstate, of New York State. Yeah. All those images, the... Um, the grapevines, I mean, all that part of the southern tier there. Uh, there's a, um, those kind of like struggling orchards, asbestos grain, the, the storefronts, the orange glow over the... Those are all uh, very distinct images I have of that part of the world. There's a bunch more all in there, you know, kind of intertwined. Um, and then the kind of mental state of the characters, this couple, you know... Um, and the snow. The snow plays such a key role in that, that story of the dead. And it plays a pretty big role out there in Western New York, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I started that, uh, that song, just that first line. They always took the back roads. When, and I just had this vision of this couple uh, in a kind of a beat-up station wagon going up to some family reunion. And that they're still together, but not... There's, always been something a little off and her distance uh, you know the way she's looking out the window and both in the car and then later at the motel all that's kind of wrapped up in there right. what were you happy there in Buffalo um you know I was only there till I was 17 um I had a pretty rough childhood but I also had dear friends who are still friends now so I wasn't that. I wasn't unhappy. And I think it's a beautiful city. And it's a really distinctive place. I like the kind of demeanor of the populace, of the people that live there. It's at once really hard and practical, but it's also really warm and loyal and, and kind. So. The new Holler General album will come out sometime this year. For updates, you can join his mailing list at michaelchorney.com. Uh. <laughs> what are you excited about right now? I guess that's what I'd want to leave with. Like, what are you excited about next? Oh, this new album is thrilling. It's so thrilling. I'm challenging myself in new ways. 
just the recording process itself, it wasn't here at the house. It was in a, a decent studio recording onto tape. So the sound is fantastic. And it's a real challenging record. I mean, there's two pieces that are 10 minutes long. I don't think, I cannot think of what genre it would, where it would land. It's not singer-songwriter, it's not jazz, it's not chamber folk, I'm, I'm not sure. And that's really been something I've been after my whole life, is like, to forge my own genre. It's why, again, it goes back to like being adopted and being able to kind of create my own identity and, um, and being self-taught. Um, there are no measures for me to like hold myself up to I know it's disorienting for people. Some people hear this music and not have any idea where to place it. And that's really satisfying to me. That's great, you know. And then if they come around to like, but I like it, that's really satisfying. And we'll see. <laughs> That was Michael Chorney. I want to thank all of you who have made donations to the show on my website. It pays for gas, an occasional website update, and most of all, it gives me time to make shows. So thank you so much. I also want to thank WGDR Goddard College and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for helping to support this show. If you have a comment about a show or an idea for a show you'd like to hear, leave a comment on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. And if you make a comment on my iTunes podcast page, that really helps the show attract new listeners. You can also subscribe to my newsletter from my website, and you'll receive news when a new show is up. And I'm on Facebook at Rumblestrip Vermont. This is Erica Heilman. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>